is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Cloti, and here's what's coming up. Human Rights Watch in a report Tuesday cited witnesses saying Mali's army and foreign fighters identified as Russians killed 300 civilians. That was reporter Annie Reisenberg on allegations of human rights violations in Mali. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The UN peacekeeping mission in Mali has demanded access to the village of Mura, where rights groups and witnesses say hundreds of people were executed in late March by the Malian army and Russian mercenaries. Annie Reisenberg reports from Bamako. The United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali, known by its French acronym MINUSMA, has sought access to the Mora area after reports the army and Russian mercenaries killed hundreds of civilians there during a March anti-terrorism operation. The top UN envoy to Mali, El Gassimwan, told the UN Security Council Thursday that Mali's military government has so far denied the requests. Juan said in a statement Minusma was only allowed to fly over the site on April 3rd and that it was imperative that authorities give access to the site in line with its mandate. In a press release Thursday, Minusma repeated deep concern at the allegations of serious violations of human rights and of international humanitarian law in Mora. Mali's army on April 1st claimed to have killed 203 terrorists during the late March operation. However, Human Rights Watch in a report Tuesday cited witnesses saying Mali's army and foreign fighters identified as Russians killed 300 civilians, some of them suspected Islamist fighters. Bamako claims Russia sent military instructors to Mali to help with its fight against Islamist insurgents. But European governments in the United States say the Russians are with the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group of mercenaries, which UN experts accuse of numerous abuses from Syria to the Central African Republic. VOA spoke to a man who, for security reasons, did not wish to use his name, who was detained with others in Mora for five days during the operation. He said he witnessed white soldiers who spoke neither French nor English sorting men into groups. He said he then saw Malian armed forces execute about 12 to 15 of the men. Mora residents told VOA that while some extremists were likely among those killed, the vast majority were innocent villagers. Mali's military tribunal has said it is investigating the events in Mora. The UN mission in Mali in past investigations has found that civilians are often wrongly targeted as militants. MINUSMA investigators a year ago found that a French airstrike on the central village of Bunti, Mali, killed 19 people, 16 of them civilians. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. Government ministers and the police on Friday met with the community of Displut Township in Johannesburg following the death of a Zimbabwean national who was stoned and burned to death by South Africans who accused foreign nationals of committing serious crime in the area. In the highly charged meeting, residents demanded that foreign nationals leave the area and that more police officers be deployed. Thuso Kumala reports from Johannesburg. Speaking to the community and journalists after the meeting, Police Minister Begitzele outlined steps the government has taken to ensure safety. He said 16 more police patrol vans had been allocated to the local police station together with more than 100 officers. He also said the police will carry out house raids for the next three months looking for criminals and undocumented migrants. He pleaded with the community to work with the police in fighting crime. Don't take law in your hand because ours is to make sure that there is a law. During the meeting, Home Affairs Minister Arum Swaledi had to intervene when some South Africans violently ejected a Zimbabwean community leader Bogan Kwananzi from the venue. 
Mkwanazi had wanted to speak at the meeting. Minister Mutualedi explained to those waiting outside the meeting how volatile the situation was. Dipslut resident Tabang Mulife told journalists why they want foreign nationals gone. He said in the past week alone, up to seven area residents had been murdered by suspected foreign nationals. Zimbabweans are killed. Zimbabweans are entering our houses. Zimbabweans are roaming around deep sleep as they please. We want Zimbabweans to leave. That is what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. They must leave. However, no one has been charged in those cases. And no one has been charged in the mob attack this week that left Zimbabwean man Elvis Nyati dead. Police this week have arrested dozens of undocumented immigrants. While residents expressed a sense of safety and hope after meeting with the government officials, foreign nationals say they now fear for their lives, as the officials said more raids will be carried out to hunt for illegal immigrants. Residents have also been told to report all suspected illegal immigrants in the township. South Africa has been haunted by xenophobic violence since 2008. The country has attracted thousands of African immigrants running away from poverty in their countries. This has resulted in immigrants and locals clashing over scarce job opportunities in a country with an unemployment rate of 35%. Meanwhile, South Africa is on the defensive after it abstained on a United Nations resolution to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. This is the third time that South Africa has abstained on a UN resolution regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Vicky Stark filed the support from Cape Town. The resolution Thursday received a two-thirds majority in the 193-member General Assembly with 93 countries voting in favour, 24 against and 58 abstaining, including South Africa. Naledi Pando is South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. In a news briefing broadcast via the South African Broadcasting Corporation, she said the government is not indifferent to what is going on in Ukraine, but thinks as a matter of urgency there must be a cessation of hostilities and that dialogue and diplomacy must be employed. The resolution, does it advance the objective we'd like to achieve, which is peace? I'm worried that if we place Russia outside of institutions of global governance, we're almost giving a license to say, do what you will. So our reflection on what is proposed is to what degree is it positive in advancing the cause for peace. Pando says the government had to risk being criticised we can be very popular and vote the way everybody thinks we should vote. Yes at this point, no at that point, and so on. But all the time, the driver for us is we have to have peace, and part of that settlement will include Russia. You're not going to be able to exclude them from settling this matter. And we don't think that what is being done is helping to draw them in. You can't use uh, the United Nations instruments as tools of war. 
they are there to achieve peace and security for the world. She said she hoped that future military aggression will be met with sanctions, isolation and a divestment campaign for those responsible. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. A Sudanese court has acquitted politicians and figures linked to the ousted government of former President Omar al-Bashir of plotting to overthrow the transition. Defense lawyer Abdallah Def said the 13 defendants were charged in 2020 during the now-deposed civilian military transitional administration, but their trial began only a few months ago. He said they were accused of an array of charges, including undermining constitutional order and financing terrorism during the transition. Dev told the French news agency AFP the court on Thursday acquitted all of the defendants and ordered them freed. The defendants include the head of the former ruling National Congress Party, Ibrahim Gandor, who also served as foreign minister under Bashir. Following Bashir's April 2019 ouster, Sudan embarked on a fragile transition towards civilian rule that derailed in an October military coup led by Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Anglophone Cameroon separatists have abducted at least a dozen people who were protesting what they said are the rebels' brutality and crimes. The separatists claim the government of the majority French-speaking country pay the protesters to discredit the separatists, which authorities deny. Moki Edward Kenzeka reports from Yaoundé. When I be start march for Oko, and when I say when I know one Amber, when I video the day on air, when I don't talk say when I know one Amber. A man and 11 women, some with their breasts exposed, sit on the ground and listen as suspected separatists force them to confess that the government paid women in Oko, an English-speaking western town, to conduct street protests of fighters' alleged abuses. The man has bruises all over his face and the women look tired. In a video widely circulated on social media, including Facebook and WhatsApp, suspected separatists say the man and the women were among several hundred people who protested in Oku. The suspected separatists say within the past two weeks, similar protests took place in Jikijem, Manchok, Gemsiba and Elak, farming and cattle ranching villages in Cameroon's English-speaking northwest region. The military says the video was taken by separatist fighters in Elak on April 6. The military also said 14 women were abducted, not just the 11 shown, but did not offer information on the missing three. Capo Daniel is Deputy Defense Chief of the Ambazona Defense Forces, one of Cameroon's separatist groups. He says those abducted were hired to discredit separatists by government officials and members of the local elite who support Cameroon's central government in Yaoundé. The group of people you see in that video are individuals that were arrested by our forces in Oku. The man you see in front is the ring leader. Twelve persons were arrested. Four of them have been released. Eight of them are going through interrogations. And anybody who is found guilty of collaborating with an alien and foreign government that is occupying our territory will have to face the consequences of their actions. Capo said a few fighters found guilty of abusing civilians' rights were punished but gave no further details. He said Cameroon's military abuses the rights of civilians more than the separatists do. The military has always denied it abuses civilians' rights. Government officials in the northwest region 
denied the women were paid to protest and discredit separatist fighters. The government says similar protests took place this week in Balangi, a village in the English-speaking southwest region. The military said four women were abducted in Balangi but did not say whether they had regained their freedom. 56-year-old Famangale Dorothy took part in the Balangi protest. She told local media, including the state-owned CRTV, Canal Due and Vision Card, that people are angry about crimes committed against women, especially separatist fighters' widows. The women, they will not die. They don't kill their master, they all. They sleep with anyhow. She says scores of men, including their husbands, have been killed by separatist fighters in Balangi village. Separatists rape girls and widows and harass civilians who do not give money to show support for the separatist fight against Cameroon's military. She says the Cameroon military should protect Balangi villagers from heinous crimes committed by fighters. Separatists have been fighting to carve out an independent English-speaking state in majority French-speaking Cameroon since 2017. Human Rights Watch, in a report in August, accused both the military and the armed separatists of abusing civilians' rights in Cameroon's English-speaking regions. The organization stressed the urgent need to protect communities at risk and to hold those responsible for abuses to account. The United Nations says at least 3,300 people have been killed and 750,000 internally displaced during the years of separatist violence. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. A recent report says thousands of children are dropping out of school in Zimbabwe due to socio-economic issues. Adegondo has more on the story for VOA from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. A local organization called Family AIDS Caring Trust Zimbabwe of fact recently reported that over 20,000 girls in the country have dropped out of school since 2020. Fact says Chipinge, Makonye, Mtasa, Buera, Gutu and Mutare were the worst affected areas. The group also noted that most student dropouts are from poor or marginalized families. Observers and educators have long warned about what they say is the domino effect of economic mismanagement in the Southern African nation. For its part, the government has blamed Western imposed sanctions. The Education Ministry says the dropout figures reported by FACT are misleading. The Progressive Teachers Union of Zimbabwe says FACT report is accurate. Its president, Farajo, says the report even underestimates the figures of kids who drop out of school. Our um, reports reflect that uh, we have more than 35,000 students that have dropped out of school since uh, 2020. And these students are largely in borderland areas. If you look at uh, Matabelen South, uh, Gwanda South and Bedbridge, uh, you have Martinot, the borderlands like Binda, Midlands, particularly in Gope and Berengwa, Masingo, particularly in Manezi and Chirezi, National and West, particularly the areas bordering Zambia, National and Central areas bordering uh, uh, Mozambique. The same applies to Manikaland, the areas bordering Mozambique. Zimbabwe President Emerson Nangagwa announced this past month that basic education would be free 
starting in 2023. A move seen by analysts as mere politicking since his administration has reneged on its previous commitment, pay the school fees for the children of school teachers to assuage their demand for higher pay. Farai Magu of the Center for Natural Resource Governance is among those who question the government's sincerity on its promise of free education by next year. This is clearly evident when we look at the salaries teachers are earning in Zimbabwe. It's a pittance. Unfortunately, the situation is not even looking good for the future. Even when they talk of free education in 2023, that, that doesn't make sense. Education in the end must be funded. Who wonders how the government will fund public education given the rampant looting of public resources and widespread corruption in the country? A sociopolitical analyst in Zimbabwe says the country's decades-old economic decline has driven up poverty, hunger, and unemployment among the most vulnerable families. He says COVID-19 exacerbated an already dire situation. And even before COVID-19, we were having very high dropout rate amongst the children at all levels. But the situation got even worse because of COVID-19. And that again is attacked the lower strata of society, the most vulnerable, the poorest of the poor, those that are unable to feed their children, those that have no income whatsoever. He says the country must break the cycle of poverty in which poor parents have children who give birth to even poorer children. A recent UNICEF report corroborates the fact report of high illiteracy rates among children at the bottom rung of society. He says education has never been priority for the administration but should be. For VOA, this is Adigwondo in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Gambians go to the polls tomorrow for legislative elections. That could give another boost to, to President Adama Barrow to strengthen his power after he won re-election last year. Voters will elect 53 lawmakers to five-year terms. Barrow will pick the other five, including the parliament's president. Voting for a new constitution seen as essential by the Gambia's international partners to strengthen its democracy and limit the president's powers will be a key task for the new legislature. A study by the World Health Organization finds the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Africa to be a fraction of the true number of people infected by the coronavirus that causes the disease. Lisa Schlein has more for VOA from Geneva. A new analysis of the spread and the presence of asymptomatic cases of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, finds infections in Africa skyrocketed from 3% of the population in June 2020 to 65% by September 2021. The WHO Regional Director for Africa, Machidiso Moiti, says the analysis of 151 studies reveals the true number of COVID-19 infections in Africa could be 97% higher than the number of confirmed reported cases. This suggests that more than two-thirds of all Africans have been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. And this compares to the global average, where the true number of infections is about 16 times higher than the number of confirmed reported cases. In real terms, this means that in September 2021, rather than the reported 8.2 million cases, there were in fact 800 million infections. The World Health Organization confirms 11.6 million cases of COVID-19 on the African continent as of April 3rd, including more than 250,000 deaths. 
Given the new findings that the WHO acknowledges, the number of actual infections is likely to be much larger. Moeti says it is complicated to get accurate data in Africa because 67% of people with COVID-19 have no symptoms. She says that highlights the need to sustain high levels of routine testing and surveillance to stay ahead of the pandemic. With many social protection measures now being relaxed, it will become even more important to allow for tracking of the virus in real time and monitoring of its evolution. Our analysis is clear evidence of the continued significant circulation of the COVID-19 virus among the people on the continent. With this comes a heightened risk of more lethal variants that can overwhelm existing immunity. The WHO study finds exposure to the coronavirus rose sharply following the emergence of the beta and the delta variants. People who become ill with COVID-19 enjoy some degree of immunity. However, Regional Director Moiti says vaccination remains the best defense against infection, as well as adding a level of protection against newly mutating strains of the virus. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Sixteen months into a civil war that killed thousands of Ethiopians and brought devastation to millions of others, the government of Ethiopia and the Tigrayan Regional Authority have agreed to a humanitarian truce and cessation of hostilities, respectively, to allow the delivery of desperately needed aid to the people of Tigray. A drought resulting from three consecutive poor rainy seasons has caused meager harvests in Ethiopia. Even in times of peace, people in the hardest-hit areas would have needed food aid. However, the fighting between government troops and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, has exacerbated an already bad situation into a humanitarian disaster. According to the United Nations, over 90% of Tigray's 5.5 million people are in dire need of food aid. Also in need of aid are people in neighboring regions of northern Ethiopia, particularly in Afar and Hamara states, who have been affected by the strife in Tigray. All told, some 9.4 million people in Ethiopia need urgent humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid is available, but aid groups said their convoys had been prevented from delivering to the Tigray region due to roadblocks and conflict. Since December 2021, the only aid to be delivered to the region has come by airplane, preventing the delivery of both food and fuel. The two warring parties blamed each other for blocking the convoys carrying humanitarian aid. However, on March 24th, the government of Ethiopia announced an indefinite humanitarian truce, and in response, the TPLF stated it would work to ensure the success of the cessation of hostilities. On April 1st and 2nd, two humanitarian convoys from USAID partner UN World Food Program transported emergency food aid, fuel and other needed supplies to the Tigray and Afar regions, as well as a small convoy from the International Committee of the Red Cross. 
The United States welcomes steps by the government of Ethiopia and regional authorities to implement a cessation of hostilities. We commend them on the delivery of humanitarian assistance over recent days to Ethiopians in the Tigray and Afar regions. Over 100,000 Ethiopians will receive life-saving food from the two initial convoys that have mobilized in the past three days, said Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We urge all parties to build upon this positive humanitarian development to take the difficult next steps to realize peace in northern Ethiopia. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewingnews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. <laughs>